0: Would you keep standing? And if you have a Bible with you, would you turn around and grab it and turn to Psalm 27? Psalm 27. If you don't have a Bible, halfway down the aisles are some black Bibles. They're also over here on the sides. Feel free to grab one of those and turn to Psalm 27. The book of Psalms is right in the middle of our Bible. We go to his word for his light, to see his glory. And this is what it says in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation, David writes. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I'll be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. But I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, again we thank you that you have spoken to us. We thank you that you have spoken down through the ages and... Your servants have recorded that, and they have written under your guidance prayers, history, poetry, wisdom, prophecy. We thank you, Lord, for the one in whose name we meet today, the one to whom all these things pointed, the one who died in our place was raised victoriously, and now lives forevermore. In the name of Jesus, we thank you for him. We celebrate his resurrection today, this Lord's Day. We thank you, Lord, that there's victory. We thank you that you're near to us as your people. Lord, we thank you that you care for us. We thank you, Lord, that you're in control, that you're good and you're wise. We pray for your help, Lord, to see that you are enough, to see that you are a saving hope, to see that you are our eternal home, to see, Lord, that you are a rock and a refuge for all who run to you. There's salvation, salvation now and salvation every day, salvation to come. Lord, we thank you for your protection. We pray for the eyes to see that you are who you are and you've done what you've done. We pray for faith to believe that you've done it in our hearts and will finish our salvation at the coming of Christ. So give us hope, give us endurance, give us patience in believing. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage the downcast this morning. We pray you would lift up those who are down. We pray, Lord, you would strengthen the weak. We pray, Lord, you would enliven the dead. You would give joy to the joyless. And we pray, Lord, you would bring conviction where that's needed, where there is hard-heartedness, where there is apathy, where there is perhaps even bitterness or resentment towards you. We pray that your word would shatter that. Lord, where there's self-reliance, and we know there's plenty of that to go around. We pray, you would take our eyes off of self and circumstances and fix them on you, our Savior, our Shepherd, our King, our God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. seems like there's nothing quite as useless or frustrating as a security system for your home that doesn't work or that you can't get to work. Or you don't know how to work. Some time ago, we had a security system installed in our house, and because we were getting such a great deal on it, we did that two- to three-year commitment. Why not, we thought, we'll use it. And we did for a few months. At least we tried to. We didn't use it so well. That loud alarm uh, went off a few times, uh, not because burglars had come in, but because we Messed something up. I don't know. Middle of the night, it goes off. We got at least one phone call from the police. It's amazing they can call and they're they're in your house. They're coming through this this speaker. I don't even know where the speaker was, but they're they're talking to me in my house. It's frightening. So I remember occasionally trying to turn it off before I left early in the morning, and cringing as I hit those numbers wondering whether I was going to wake up the neighborhood once again. So eventually it became an insecurity system, (laughs) right? And we just slowly stopped using it eventually. Now, I'm not looking for advice here. If you come up afterwards and you say, well, did you hit pound first or did you go slow enough or what's your code, I'll help you. I may punch you if you... (laughs) I don't care, okay? We have a Rottweiler now, and and the Rottweiler is way more predictable than this security system was. My point is this. What makes you feel secure? What makes you feel at home, comfortable, peaceful, restful, and not just in your home, but in life? What makes you afraid on the other side of the coin? What do you fear? What are your biggest worries? If this were a smaller group and an interactive Bible study, i pause right here and just have us start listing things, things in our own life or perhaps even hypothetical things, things that we worry about, things we're afraid of, potential worries, real worries. I think that would be helpful because it would... It'd be helpful to have big and small fears, and the many different kinds of fears, and just to see the amount of fears, or potential fears, right in front of us, the front of our mind as we dig into Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is about that relationship between knowing fear and knowing God. You could say, it's about no fear, and oh fear, and... Knowing God, K N O W, God, no God. The reverse is also true. No fear, N O fear, no, I'm sorry, no God, N O God, means K N O W fear, no fear. The psalm begins with a rich and unique claim. It's unique, it's not elsewhere in the Bible. This phrase, my light and my salvation, those two words together. David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. My light means truth, clarity. You're my direction. You're even my my energy. You're my joy. It's personal. He says, my, just like he did in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Remember we said, it's amazing that David says, Yahweh God. That's what capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D mean in most of our English translations. Yahweh, the name God gave to himself, the name God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, the God who says, I am who I am. That God, David says, in Psalm 23, is my shepherd, personal. And Here he says, he's my light, not just light, not just our light, my light. And he's my salvation. What does David mean by salvation? Does he mean personal delivery? He helps me. He gets me out of this bind or that bind? Perhaps. Does he mean national victory? He's my salvation because, well, David's the king, right? And God has given great promises about David's throne. Yeah, so... Part of God's salvation, as far as David was concerned, no doubt related to those, those promises being fulfilled, the nation being saved, the throne continuing. But of course, if you're a Christian and you're more familiar with the New Testament than the Old Testament, you hear salvation and you think, rightly so, forgiveness. And David does in part two. He talks about that in Psalm 130. He says, Oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? If you're keeping track of this, we're in trouble. But with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. A few verses later, he says, Oh, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there's steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Redeem not just from Bondage, not just from stupidity, not just from the enemy. Salvation not just in war, but salvation in God. Fulfilled in Jesus according to the New Testament. Jesus is salvation. That's what his name means. God saves. So in Acts 4, it says there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Even in our pop culture, people know about that that word, saved. Oh, he's saved. He's born again. It's precious to us as Christians, though, right? We recognize we need a savior, not a helper, not a guide. We need a savior. We need a substitute. Titus 2 describes it like this. The grace of God has appeared to us, bringing salvation for all people. What's this grace that's appeared? Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's who. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness another the way of saying sin and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what David has in mind when he says salvation. Of course, he doesn't know about Jesus coming by name. He knows a Messiah is to come. He doesn't know that Messiah will perhaps die or certainly not die on a cross. I don't think he understood that from what he wrote in Psalm 22. But he knows salvation is in God. Salvation is of the Lord, as Psalm 3 says, and as we sing. And hence, that same God is the stronghold of my life. A stronghold is A fortress. He's the stronghold of my whole life, my being, my circumstances, my future, my present, now and in eternity. So when the Lord is our light and our salvation, what are the results? I think that's what the rest of Psalm 27 is about. What are the results when the Lord is our light and our salvation and our stronghold? I think there are four related but distinct results in Psalm 27. The first is that there is unparalleled peace. Unparalleled peace, verses 1 through 3. There's this unearthly confidence. There's unthinkable fearlessness. Not commensurate with the circumstances. Paul talks about this in Philippians. He says that God would give them, he prays, God would give them peace. That passes all understanding. What's that mean? Peace that doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit with the circumstances. Humanly speaking, there's reason to be anxious, to to not have peace. And the Lord will give them peace. The Lord gives peace. So that David can say, whom shall I fear? Two times in verse 1, obviously a rhetorical question. Who do I have to be afraid of? Obvious answer, no one. What thing do I have to fear? Obvious answer, nothing. And so he gives a litmus test of sorts in verses 2 to 3. He says in verse 2, When evildoers assail me, attack me to eat up my flesh. These aren't cannibals. aren't really going to eat up his flesh. But what it means is that they're not just going to arrest him. They're going to devour him. They're going to kill him. They're going to mangle him. Evil doers on the prowl. Verse 3, even if a whole army encamps against me. To encamp means to set up camp with a certain direction in mind, going to battle on the attack for a certain person or a certain nation. Well, rarely would it ever be a certain person, but that's what David's writing about here a whole army against little old me. A war, and on one side is an army, the other side is me. Now, these were real-life experiences for David. We've been seeing that as we occasionally come across a psalm that gives us a context clue from 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel. We can go back and read the story there of a time when David probably or may have written that psalm. You remember, at least two times, he was on the run with an army against him, a skilled army, a big army, and even, ironically, his own army because of betrayal and because of lack of faith of Saul. Can you imagine an army against you? the only thing I can think of in today's terms that's remotely like that, and of course this guy's guilty and David wasn't, but Osama bin Laden, to have a skilled national army on your butt? I mean, can you imagine how fearful that would be? David is talking about real-life experiences, and yet notice David here in verse 2 doesn't exactly say that an army is against him here? Some places he does. We certainly know that's true, but it's more hypothetical. Verse 2, when evildoers assail me. And then verse 3, though an army encamp against me. Some translations have, even if evildoers would do this. Even if an army would be against me. So, it's in some ways hypothetical. It's hypothetical because David isn't just talking about his own experience, he's exploring worst case scenarios. He does the same thing in verse 10. This one we know is hypothetical. You don't see in the ESV that it is hypothetical. He says, For my mother, my father, and my mother have forsaken me. Literally, it's even if my father and mother have forsaken me. The Lord will take me in. The worst of trials or experiences or fears or worries, external ones, an army against me, internal ones. Mom and dad hate me. They won't have anything to do with me. He's entertaining worst-case scenarios. He goes there. Some people say, oh, don't go there. If you mention cancer to someone, they'll say, oh, don't even say that. And if you read any secular psychology or self-help book on worry, it almost always tells you that 99% of your fears are irrational or at least unlikely. So they say, don't worry because it'll probably never happen. And some of us need to hear that. Some of us do have extremely irrational fears at times. But these books also tell us not to worry because it can't change anything. And some of us need to hear that. Jesus said that. Jesus said in Luke 12, no one can change anything by worrying about it. Don't worry. But that's not all that Jesus and the rest of the Bible say. That's far from the full Scriptural prescription for worry and fear. All that secular psychology can say is, don't think about it. Don't go there. Only think about positive things. Imagine a different, more hopeful outcome, and maybe that's what will happen. But David's God-rooted confidence can go there. He boldly entertains the worst-case scenarios. He looks the lion in the mouth, and he laughs an army against him, mother and father forsaking him. He does something similar, but a little bit different in Psalm 46. We're there. The litmus test are natural disasters. Psalm 46, this is worth memorizing. I'd encourage you. Boy, I quote this to myself often. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Here's the litmus test. Even though the earth gives way. Earthquake. Even though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Volcano. Tsunami. Though the waters are roaring and foaming. Though the mountains are trembling at its swelling. Mount St. Helens, even if we will not fear. An assumption in Psalm 27 and in Psalm 46 is that fear and danger are real things. In a sense, we actually have good reason to fear. Now again, that's not all the Bible says, but it's something that's important to acknowledge from the start. There, there's good reason to be afraid. It is chaotic out there, seemingly so. It seems unpredictable. It seems uncontrollable. Christianity doesn't deny that. Other world religions do. They say that's an illusion. There's another reality that's more serene and peaceful, and you, you live there. You ignore this other stuff that seems like it's bad or out of control. But the Bible says no, this world is broken, it's undone. The devil and the flesh are real. of what happens on the face of the earth, you have no control over. Not just the things on the other side of the earth, but you can't control weather in your backyard. You can't control the stock market where you keep your investments or where you used to keep your investments. You can't control your boss. You can't control his decisions. You can't control your company. You can't control your mother in law. Some of life is driving down a proverbial highway with our hands on the wheel, and we're doing our best to steer, to stay on the road, to keep us from veering off. But much of life feels like we're buckled into a car that's speeding down the highway, and there's no steering wheel in front of you. That has to be a scary thing to be a driving instructor. There's no steering wheel. They have the brake. They have a break, but that's it. To be there and to be at the mercy of someone else when it feels like you shouldn't be. Well, life is like that. It's out of our hands so much of the time. Terrorists are real. There are real bad guys out there. My son was for a while obsessed with bad guys. I guess he still is, but... They were all just theoretical to him, right? And, and one day, uh, Sarah was with the kids and they saw a police chase and I, I don't know, I think they actually saw a guy running or something and so he was fascinated. He saw a real bad guy. He told everyone for days, I saw a real bad guy. didn't have the mask on over his eyes like that. There are real bad guys out there. This world is under a curse. Sometime Sometimes the tests come back and it's stage four. Some governments are on the brink. Others seem to look more shaky all the time, not least our own. A pandemic could spread across the globe tomorrow. Young or old, rich or poor, we all have worry and fear. I used to think as a kid, when I got older, I wouldn't... I wouldn't have any fears. And some I don't have anymore. I, I I don't need to turn the light on, you know, to go down and get a drink of water in the middle of the night. Oh, but I have all kinds of new fears and worries to fight against. Be afraid. Be very afraid, because in some sense there is good reason to fear. Psalm 27 assumes that, and it assumes also that we'll wrestle with fear and worry. That we don't like it, we want to conquer it, we want to be delivered from it. Some deal with their fear by just letting it overtake them by being consumed by it, as if fear and worry can make up some kind of protection where there's a point system. If I worry about all those things, then there's less likelihood that one of them will get me. I've counseled people like that. Some deal with their fear by trying to suppress it. Alcohol. Drugs. Or the drug of materialism. Or... The drug of work and doing and busyness or the drug of entertainment where we have to just keep our hands busy and our minds occupied lest there's silence in the room and we're still and we own up to our fears and our worries. Some try to deal with their fear by just denying it. FDR's line. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. And then World War II took place. Some try to deal with their fear by conquering it head on. There used to be a TV show called Fear Factor. I don't know if it's on anymore, but it was these, I was going to say people, but idiots. (laughs) It's better. You know, jump out a window and they'd land on some sort of cushy mat. I guess there's this rule where they can't die on your TV show. So they'd all make it, right? But they would do dangerous things and downright frightening things, including eating roaches or, you know, this lamb gut. Something like that. They're thrill seekers, right? A guy who jumps off a cliff, floats and flies, and at the last second hits his parachute. And his goal next time... It's to get closer to the ground before he pulls it. Oh, well, those guys don't deal with fear, do they? Well, it's like that line in Shakespeare, I think my lady doth protest too much. Yeah, they deal with fear. It's proof that they're wrestling with fear by virtue of the fact that they are consumed to show that they're tougher than it. Trying to conquer it, and they can't. All of these may temporarily minimize or recalibrate your fears, but your fears are there. It's like a a wet blanket over a wolverine. Eventually, he's getting out, and it usually isn't pretty. That's the first thing, unparalleled peace. David, remarkably, in light of all the fear that we wrestle with and we know, and it's not just in our day, but in his day too, it's not any worse in his day than it was that it is in ours. In fact, in some ways, it's so much more worse because we know these extreme, worst-case hypotheticals, like a war against you, an army on your tail. For David, that was real. And yet he has parallel, unparalleled peace. Secondly, he has a hunger for God's presence. When the Lord is our light and our salvation, we'll have a hunger for his presence. Notice in verse 4 begins with one thing. One thing I've asked of the Lord, and this is what I'm going to seek after. And then he kind of lists three things. Some have joked, even in commentaries, scholars have joked that uh, David might not know math so well. One thing I've asked, then he lists, lists three things. Well, It's a three-legged stool. There's oneness and there's threeness. Three things that have the same idea about them. See if you can spot it. One leg of the stool is to dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. Another leg of the stool, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And the third, to inquire in his temple. These all relate to God's presence. There's the one thing. He wants God. He wants to experience God. He wants to know God. He wants to be near to God. He wants to see God. He wants to what we call commune with God. He wants his presence. Now, let me say something in passing, kind of a picky point that you probably didn't even think about as a possible thorny issue. You see, David's talking about the temple here, right? He mentions the temple. He talks about the tent. He talks about the holy place. David writes this, supposedly, before the temple is built. The temple's built after David. His son Solomon was the one to build the temple. So some scholars think the title, the beginning, before verse 1, where it says of David, isn't accurate. Someone wrote it later on, wrote the psalm later on, and then later after that, affixed of David to the top of it. I think David did write this. I think it's not a problem for us. He wrote it before the temple was built because David looks ahead to the temple that's promised to come and speaks of it like it's there because it's a given. God has promised it and it's coming and he's longing for it. I mean, I think if you ask David, you could have your druthers here. Do you want to see the temple? Do you want to go in the temple? Yeah, you bet. Even if it doesn't come in his lifetime, though, he's longing for that reality, and it's a fixed expectation that God will bring it. And yet, precisely because the temple hasn't been built as David writes Psalm 27, we see that David's hope is far beyond that physical temple that would dwell there in Jerusalem under Solomon's rule. He's longing for something so much more however glorious that physical temple would be, David longs for what that temple is. That temple is the house of God. It is his presence. That's what David wants. Whether you call it a tabernacle before David's time or a temple after David's time, it's God's glory. It's his presence. So on one level, you can't separate the tabernacle of old or the temple after Solomon From God's presence, that's what it was all about. It's where God was. But if that's what David means, that's all David means, then he says too much. He goes too far in Psalm 27 because notice he says in verse 4 he wants to dwell in God's temple all his days, he wants to live there. No one did that, not even the priests, not even the high priest. He didn't get a cot, he didn't get to spend the night. But David's saying so. And what he's really saying is that he wants God's constant presence. He wants the temple, the physical temple. But he wants that as a means of getting to God's presence. And he wants more than just a temple. He wants God himself. He wants to dwell with him all his days. He says in verse 5, he wants to be concealed in his tent, wrapped up in his house, in his dwelling Remember Psalm 16, 11? That it's in his presence that there's the fullness of joy. It's at his right hand that there are pleasures forevermore. Remember when we looked at that psalm, we asked, so where does God dwell? And where does he reveal himself to us? Or where do we go to get him? If it's in his presence that there's fullness of joy, where do we go to get that joy? Well, for David, it would have been Bible. He would experience God through his word. It would be also through prayer, through private worship, you might call it. So many of the Psalms seem to be written right out of David's prayer closet, right? Him alone with God. But David would also believe and encourage us to know that we go to God When we meet with his saints, when the people meet together, it says in the Psalms, God inhabits the praises of his people. He dwells in the midst of their praises. For us, where do we go to get God, to get to him, to see him, to behold him? Well, it's so similar to what David did. We go to the Bible. We just have more of it now. We go to him in prayer. And we go to him, like David did, in planned prayer and popcorn prayer. Do you know about popcorn prayer? It's throughout the day. Just pop, pop, little thing comes up. You pop it up to the Lord. You talk to him about it. Nehemiah does that when he has to go before Artaxerxes. And he has to talk to him about what he wants. And it says, I prayed to the God of heaven and said... In between this little dialogue, between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah, he takes a breath and he prays, popcorn prayer, or practicing his presence. That's what we do. That's the way in which we dwell with him. That's the way in which we experience his tent or his tabernacle, and also, like David, in corporate worship. But unlike the Old Testament, where God was in a house, whether that be a tent or a permanent temple, now Jesus has come, and he's dwelt in our midst. And he is the true temple. He said, destroy this temple, meaning his body. On the third day, I'll rise again. And now he says we're his temple. He dwells within us. We've become little holy buildings for his dwelling place. And get this, when these little holy dwellings get together, it's like they make up a bigger, more glorious spiritual temple. First Peter 2 says we're all like living stones. When we come together, the living stones make up a, a house of God. What we're doing right now is being the temple. And God is here. He's in our midst. We gaze upon his beauty whether it's in Bible on our own or in corporate worship together or as a family or throughout the day here and there as we get the chance we want to gaze upon his beauty. That doesn't mean really looking at him he's invisible. It doesn't mean looking at beauty as if as if we can really get to his presence through just beauty. No, he's not saying that. His beauty is his glory, his goodness, his truth, his promises, his description, what the word says about him. We're to gaze on that, stare. To stare and study, to soak and be saturated. When I was two, I came across... Uh, a kid's dirt bike, and I was changed forever. (laughs) I became obsessed with this, so I said to my mom and dad, I want to get this, and they said, well, great, save up. I think that they thought I never would save up enough. Uh, By the time I was six, I had enough money. Um, Relatives were so sick of me asking every birthday and Christmas, I want money for my dirt bike, money for my dirt bike. So from two to six, I was... I was consumed with this, and I would get the brochure of the Yamaha YZ-50 until one wore out, and I'd get a new one. That one would wear out, and I'd get a new one. I can tell you to this day, I can picture in my mind exactly what the muffler shape of the YZ-50 is. I can tell you what the words, well, some of them anyway, what the words said around the picture of this dirt bike. I gazed at it. I studied it. I soaked in it. To me, it was beautiful. Oh, the Lord is so much more glorious. But that's the idea with gazing. We study it. We soak in it. We saturate ourselves with it. It takes time. It takes energy, thought. Gaze on his beauty. It's really just to meditate. It's really what verse 8 and 9 say seek his face. God says to David, Seek my face. And David says, Your face, Lord, will I seek. That is what David says is his one thing. That's the singular focus of his life. That's his one wish, his one genie wish. It's not five more wishes not for this or for that it's not even that this thing would go away this problem would get fixed what he asked for he also sought after one thing God's presence described a few different ways are you seeking him are you gazing upon him are you inquiring in his temple in his word Are you going to His Word and going in prayer to Him? Are you meeting with the church like you should? Well, that's the true and full prescription for worry and fear. Let me say that again. That's the true prescription for for worry and for fear. You want to fight fear? You fight it with God's presence. Which means for us as Christians, that's Bible... In prayer, and church. That's how we fight anxiety. That's how we fight for peace. In other words, verse 4 answers that rhetorical question in verse 1. Whom shall I fear? No one. How'd you get there? One thing. One thing I've asked of the Lord. So David's security and his confidence isn't in knowing the future, that all things are going to turn out, it's going to be easy, it's just a couple more days, and then it's smooth sailing. That's not where his confidence lies. His security is rooted in the experience of God. Nothing else, nothing less. It's as if he's saying, it doesn't matter who's coming around the corner. If I'm in my tent with him, I'm safe. I have everything I need. We're safe and secure when God is the one thing we want. Not that other things aren't good. Not that we don't want other things or shouldn't seek other things. Many things are good. Kids are good. Spouses are good. Jobs are good. Homes are good. Praise the Lord for them. But only one thing is the one thing. This is really nothing other than the first of the Ten Commandments. You will have no other gods before me. This is nothing else than what God said himself in Isaiah 45. I am the Lord and there is none besides me. None. That's what Colossians calls preeminence. He's not first place. He's everything. We often let many good things function like they are that one thing but they're not. St. Augustine in the 5th century said, Our fears, like nothing else, show us our idols. Our fears show us our idols. You see, when good things become God things, we're overcome with fear about losing them. There's a great book on this topic of fear and worry by Ed Welch, commended to you. It's called Running Scared, Fear, Worry, and the God of Rest. Ed Welch says, worry is dangerous. It's not to be trifled with. When you find worries, anxieties, and fears, pay attention. Why? We know that worry and fear are more about us than about the things outside us. They reveal what is valuable to us. And what is valuable to us, in turn, reveals our allegiances. Our allegiances reveal What we worship. David's one thing is so practically powerful. God is the one thing in this world that can't change, that doesn't fade, that doesn't break, it doesn't expire, it it doesn't give up, it doesn't fail. Everything else can and does all those things. All flesh is as grass, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So David has hitched his hopes and his dreams to that sled of the eternal, unchanging, self-sustaining, self-satisfying God. You want no fear, no God. That leads to praise. In fact, praise in this psalm is both the means to get to Godward confidence, and it's also the result of a God-given security. Look at verse 6. With shouts of joy, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Praise is how we get the confidence we need. That's how we fight the fear that we hate. And it's also the result of feeling free, secure. And sure in him. Third thing we see, and we'll do these last two much more quickly than the first, in typical Ryan fashion. Third thing is there is confidence in his protection. Confidence in his protection. Verses 7 to 12 are different prayer requests about confidence and faith, protection, and also God's presence. He says in verse 7, Be gracious to me and answer me. He says in verse 9, Don't hide your face from me. Don't hold back. He says, Don't turn me away in your anger. Don't cast me off. Be merciful to me. Keep communion with me. Also, teach me. Lead me. He's not just looking for experience here without any kind of change of actions. Notice that? Lead me. Teach me. He wants to to experience God, and he wants to do God's will. And he prays in verse 12 for protection, essentially. But notice, he doesn't desire to go into God's presence just to ask for help. In the Roman Catholic tradition, you go into church, if there's something big going on, you want to make a special prayer, you light a candle, and perhaps being there and lighting a candle is meant to signal a more important prayer a greater need, and maybe it gives you benefit on the other side. But David doesn't think like that here. David desires to go into God's presence, not so that his prayer is more powerful or its outcome is more likely, but to get to God. That doesn't mean it's wrong to go to God for help. That doesn't mean it's wrong to come here during the week and pray. It's a quiet place usually during the week. But David calls on God for help so that he can get to God himself. David's true goal isn't the absence of fear. God isn't the means to get fearlessness. Fearlessness is the means to get to God. Fear is an obstacle in the way of communion with him. It's a distraction from him. Our problems are real, yes, but they're they're not the fullest reality. Our fears and fighting those fears are not just for the purpose of avoiding something that's unpleasant. Worry isn't just wrong. It's a detour from the God path. And the God path is where there is true protection, security, and comfort. So David is essentially praying for protection so that he can enter God's presence. Or even better, we could put it this way, protection, the kind of protection he's looking for, is God's presence. If he's right with him, it doesn't matter that there's an army beating down the path behind him. Remember he said, even if an army encamps against me, I will not fear, for you are with me. It said in Psalm 23... Here he says, because you're my one thing. I know God's presence doesn't seem like it'll be protection, but it may not be the kind of protection that you want. In other words, we need to have confidence in the Lord's protection, in him as protector. It may not be the kind of protection that you think you need, but his presence is that truest and most glorious protection. Lastly, David tells us that when the Lord is my light and my salvation, there is steadfast patience. Verses 13 and 14 are about believing while we wait. Verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The ESV doesn't seem to capture the if part of this. It maybe could read... Unless I believed that I would look upon the Lord, I would have fainted. Or I think the King James is, I had fainted unless I believed I would see the goodness of the Lord. He hasn't seen what he's looking for just yet. He hasn't seen the fullness of the goodness of God's glory in the land of the living just yet. But he would have fainted if he hadn't believed that he would. It was enough to believe it. Do you see that? Lord, I would have fainted if you didn't heal me. Fix this. Save him. Give me that thing. David says, I want his presence. I want more of it. And I don't yet have it. Like the deer that pants for the water brook in Psalm 42. He's not there yet. The water is God himself and he can't seem to get to God. But he's panting. He's seeking He's praying. He's asking for God's help. And he's preaching to himself. Don't be downcast. You will hope in God. In the meantime, wait. He says in verse 14, wait on the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait. It means just like you think it means be expectant. And yet be patient. It's full of faith endurance that David's calling us to here. Wait, it's his timing. We saw that so wonderfully last Sunday as Josh Swanson led us through Exodus 5 and 6. God's people are a people who wait. It's one of their defining characteristics. Oh, I know we don't believe it many times. I know I certainly don't live it much of the time. But the people of the Old Testament, if you could say one thing about them, it's they're waiting. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. They're waiting people. And even now, as Christians, Jesus has come. We have salvation, but he hasn't come back yet. This isn't the new heaven and the new earth. The curse isn't defeated. Satan is not thrown into the abyss just yet. Death is still there. We still cry. People still die. Life is hard. So we wait. Part of the answer is we wait. We wait believing that he will finish what he started. He is good. He's sovereign. He's wise. We, as his people, should be patiently expectant, seeking his presence where we can for all that we can and knowing that this isn't it. Someday, We'll see him face to face. Someday we'll be with him in a temple, not like this, but the consummate temple, the perfect temple, a whole earth temple, a new heaven, a new earth. His glory will fill that place like the sun does this world right now. Not yet, but one day we wait.